0: We're free from our kids. Take a long bath, turn your brain off, and think about opening up to new things. Oh college is a big leap, and not
1: everyone's ready. We're going to do a little role play about consent. I didn't consent to
2: being bored out of my school. Ever since my son went away to college, I've been having these crazy fantasies. Well, what are you going to do about it? Nothing. Do it. <gasps>
0: For L.A. Times Studios, I'm Mark Olson, and this is The Real, where culture and entertainment meet. An empty nest and midlife sexual awakening don't seem like things that normally go hand in hand, but that is the launching point for Mrs. Fletcher, the Tom Parada novel that's now been adapted into a new limited HBO series starring powerhouse Katherine Hahn. Parada, who's also the showrunner and executive producer for the series, and who also wrote Election, The Leftovers, and Little Children, says the seeds for the story came to him seven years ago when he dropped his daughter off at college. Mrs. Fletcher also follows the experiences of the title character's college freshman son. Young, white, straight, and self-centered, he finds out the hard way how his entitlement collides with campus culture and contemporary sexual politics. My interview with Parada is coming up in just a few minutes. But first, this news. You've probably noticed the billboards with Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Aniston pushing a new program called The Morning Show on Apple TV+. Coupled with the launch of Disney+, HBO Max, and Peacock, it's a sure sign the streaming wars are underway. What platforms will dominate the video subscription world? And how can we possibly keep up with the new wave of content? Here to help me sort this out is Times TV editor Matt Brennan. Matt, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Mark. And now you just, we published a big package of stories recently on what we're calling the streaming wars. And maybe just to get started, give me a sense. Why now? Like, why is this sort of glut of content and new platforms happening right now? What I think you're seeing is the shakeout
1: of a period of intense flux in the television business in particular because of the rise of streaming. Netflix launched its first major original series, House of Cards and Orange is the New Black, in 2013. It was followed by original series from Hulu and Amazon. What you're seeing is other players, both old and new, try to get in on the fact that streaming is going to be the way that we consume television and, to a large extent, movies going forward. And that means that Apple... Disney, Warner Media, which owns HBO, and uh, Comcast, which owns NBC Universal, are all launching streaming services to sort of compete with the ones that are out there. You also have CBS All Access and a bunch of sort of smaller streaming services that are vying for our attention. This is just sort of like a critical moment in that
0: ongoing battle where it sort of becomes an all-out war. If up until now with sort of Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, that's just a minor skirmish compared to what we're about to see. And if nothing else, there's going to be so much new content. I know Disney's really trumpeting just how much they're going to have on the platform when it launches. Is it possible for people to keep up? Like, what do you recommend people do given all this new content that they can't possibly watch all at once?
1: Well, I can say this. You cannot keep up. Stop trying. I'm the TV editor of the Los Angeles Times, and I can't keep up with how much television there is. My actual recommendation to people is to just watch what you like. When you sample something and you like it, stick with it. If you sample something and you don't like it, you can move on without feeling guilty. It shouldn't feel like homework. In terms of keeping up more broadly, I mean, one way to do it is to subscribe to the Times and to read our coverage, because our goal is really to try to help you sort through what you should be devoting your time to, to understand what the sort of major trends are in both the business and the art form, and to sort of give you the stories behind what you're already watching. And if we can do all of those things, hopefully we can sort of serve your interest in television.
0: Do you see this as something that's going to be sustainable? Is this sort of like the initial salvos of these new platforms dropping all this new content? Like, is that going to be the model moving forward? In some ways, I'm wondering in particular with Disney and The Mandalorian, the Star Wars show, that the budgets on that show sound like it's, I mean, essentially bigger than a lot of movies per episode. Is this a business? Is it going to be viable for them to sort of like keep this going moving forward? Well, that remains to be seen. I do think that Disney
1: is well positioned, one, because of its deep pockets, and two, because of its hugely identifiable existing brands, which is what its new streaming service, Disney+, Plus, which launches on November 12th, is going to be built around. Star Wars, Marvel, Pixar, and National Geographic, which is sort of brought in under the Fox merger, are all really well-known products already. So what they're trying to do is bring people who are already committed to those brands into the service. Disney also is a major owner of Hulu and of ESPN and will bundle those together with Disney Plus in order to make the product more attractive. When it comes to Apple, I think the question is what does it mean to have essentially what is a hardware company get into the making of film and television? Apple is launching a nine original series, uh, including sort of the flagship show.
2: The part you guys never seem to realize is that you don't have the power anymore. And frankly, I've let you bozos handle this long enough. We are doing this my way.
1: Which is The Morning Show, starring Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon on November 1st, and we'll be making a one-year free trial of Apple TV Plus available to anyone who buys a new Apple product. I believe it includes iPhones, iPads, and iMacs. Um, it is A little bit less clear whether their strategy is trying to encourage you to buy more Apple products or whether they are going to increasingly sort of move in the direction of developing, for lack of a better term, software around sort of entertainment consumption. I know that a big part of their launch is about the Apple TV Plus app as a sort of one-stop location where you can actually access all of your other television If that ends up being sort of as functionally useful as it sounds, then they could prove to be a really competitive place where people are spending a lot of their time. I think the ultimate goal of all of these companies is not just to get you to watch one show or get you to subscribe to their service. It is to get you to spend as much of your entertainment and leisure time as possible within the ecosystem that they have created. Because in doing that, you are not only likely paying a subscription fee per month, but you are also giving them a lot of information about your consumption habits that they wouldn't otherwise have. Giving them an opportunity to sort of sell you other products, whether it's branded merchandise, whether it's hardware, whether it's other programming, what they want is to be your only place to go. What makes it a war is that all of them have good reasons why they should be your only place. And none of them yet have such a dominant position that they are the only place. And it will be interesting
0: to see how that works. And now, do you see, I mean, with consumers having to get all these new subscriptions and passwords and platforms, at some point, people are going to say, gee, I wish all these assorted things were available to me in one place, which sounds a lot like the cable TV that they already probably have. Streaming is the new cable. And
1: if you cut the cord, the new bundle is just going to be a sort of amalgamation of subscriptions to different streaming services. The dream behind cord cutting was, I don't want to pay for all these channels that I don't watch. And for a minute, it seemed like the possibility was that you could pay for a streaming service or services where you would only get what you wanted to watch. But as those services start to sort of supplant or join cable companies in terms of vying for our attention and our dollars, what you have is a return to the original proposition, which is no matter which streaming services you subscribe to, there are going to be things that your friends are watching that you are not able to watch. And there are going to be things on those services that you have no interest in watching.
0: That is unavoidable. Just on a level of sort of pure fandom and anticipation, what are you looking forward to? Like, is there a show that, like, you're excited about that's on the horizon from these new platforms? No. <laughs> I I don't want
1: to be a downer. But I do think that one sort of drawback of the streaming wars is the feeling of mass production coming back to television after a long period of creative fervor, one of the things that happened sort of in the first era of Streaming's rise is that it forced everyone to sort of shake up their approach to programming in order to compete in an ecosystem that didn't abide by the old rules. So it's interesting to me that 2019 marks 20 years since the debut of The Sopranos, which is often sort of considered the progenitor of what became known as the golden age of television. I think 2019 and the start of the streaming wars in some ways will be remembered as the sort of closing of the chapter of that age, because those things are determined by technological and economic factors, not just creative ones. And we're entering a period where, yes, we will continue to have great television shows and really sort of radical artworks on TV whether it's broadcast, cable, premium, streaming. But I do think that there will be, in the increasing volume of television, a loss of that sense that what was the best stuff on TV was also the stuff that everyone was talking about, which, I will note, is not always what everyone was watching. There is a distinction to be drawn between ratings and sort of buzz or chatter. But I think... With the caveat that, you know, a lot of what is going to be coming out from these streaming services hasn't been announced yet. I think that my fear as a lover of television is that it becomes easier for really good shows to get
0: lost in the shuffle. Well, I'm sure we're going to continue talking about this both on a sort of a show-to-show basis and also for the with regards to kind of like the the bigger picture and ongoing horizon. So to help us make sense of this, thanks for joining me today, Matt. Thanks, Mark. And uh, now let's go to the Glenn Whip Awards Minute. The Academy Awards aren't until early February, but some of the first winners of the season will be receiving honorary Oscars at the annual Governor's Awards on October 27th. This year's honorees are actress and activist Gina Davis, Native American actor Wes Studi, Italian filmmaker Lena Vertmuller, and of course, the legendary director David Lynch. And here to talk to me about the Governor's Awards in both their official and unofficial capacity is Glenn Whip. Glenn, thanks as always for being here. You bet, Mark. And now tell me a little bit, first of all, about The Governor's Awards, why do they even have them? Like, how did the show get started?
3: Well, this was split off in 2009. So you used to watch the Academy Awards probably when you were growing up, and you'd see these great moments of the Hollywood legends getting their honorary Oscars. This was back when the Oscars telecast would go on for 12 hours, and nobody cared because there were three channels, and what else are you going to watch? Now there's uh, determination that attention spans are short and we don't have time for these legends. Um, We need to keep the telecast at three hours. So they broke them off and now there's a fancy dinner at the Dolby Theater, uh, Hollywood and Highland, right by where the Oscars are held. And they give three or four honorary awards every year.
0: Now, Gina Davis has won a competitive Oscar. She won for The Accidental Tourist. These other three honorees do not have Oscars. To what extent do you feel like the Governor's Awards, these honorary Oscars, are these like makeup awards? Is this for people that the Academy kind of feels like uh, they should have won an Oscar at some point? Mm -hmm. It's always been kind of a mix.
3: Two or three years ago, Harry Belafonte got one of these honorary Oscars. And it was as much for his activism as it was for his career. And I think you see that again this year. As you mentioned, Gina Davis, she already has an Oscar for acting. But in the last, what, 15 years, she's become really well known for advocating for women in film.
4: The worldview that we are reflecting to children is very, very imbalanced. Uh, For every one female character, there are three male characters. And in crowd scenes, bizarrely, only 17% of the characters are female.
0: And then the actor Wes Studi, many people know him from Heat or The Last of the Mohicans. He's going to be the first Native American actor to receive an Oscar when he gets this. And that seems like a, a place where maybe the Academy is attempting to sort of acknowledge a past oversight.
3: Definitely, definitely. And I think you can look at that. You can look at when you talk about past oversight. I mean, David Lynch doesn't have an Oscar. Obviously, he doesn't make mainstream movies that are going to appeal to the people who
0: voted for Green Book. You know. He is one of those people that you feel like, David Lynch should have an Oscar. Like, who, sure. who's going to not feel okay about David Lynch having an Oscar? And since he never won one in competition, I think they're just trying to sort of acknowledge him. And the same, in some ways, is true of the Italian filmmaker Lena vertmuller Yes. She is the f- first woman who was ever nominated for directing uh, did not win for Seven Beauties in 1976. I think this is a way of acknowledging her contributions, her place in Oscar history. But now tell me about the sort of unofficial capacity of this event, that it does seem like it's a very vital and early kind of whistle stop along the sort of award season campaign trail. I think of it in my mind as like the declaration of intent. But like mm. A lot of people show up this weekend and it's like they're running.
3: Yeah. Um, it's just like now this big award season stop, where you have about 750 Academy members in a room. So studios buy tables and they trot out all their contenders to be in the same room as voters. So you remember like, oh yeah, Tom Hanks is in a movie this year. Yeah, I should catch that. Or I got to remember to watch that. And it, it makes it a fun party. I bet even Joaquin Phoenix will be in the room. I'm, I'm throwing him out as just like people who hate this kind of like glad handing And maybe Joaquin Phoenix will be in the room and he won't move from his seat the entire night. I've seen people do that. I remember Tarantino doing that for Hateful Eight. You know, you had to come see him. He wasn't gonna be making the rounds shaking hands, but but plenty of people made it over to his table. As always,
0: thank you for being here, Mr. Glenn Webb. Thank you, Mark. And we'll be back after a short break.
2: Hi, I'm Gustavo Arellano, a reporter at the Los Angeles Times. I want to tell you about a new podcast we made, this time with our partners at Futuro Studios that I think you're gonna love. I'm the host and the podcast is called This is California, the Battle of 187. It's all about Proposition 187. It was on the ballot 25 years ago in California, and it was an all-out assault on undocumented immigrants. In the podcast, I talked to some key players in Orange County who came up with 187 back in the 90s. And I try to find answers to things about the ballot measure that have bugged me for years. Like, how did it all start? What was 187 really about? And is the same stuff that California went through in the 90s going to happen to the United States today? You can listen to the trailer now on our website by going to latimes.com forward slash prop 187. If you like what you hear, subscribe to This Is California, The Battle of 187, wherever you get your podcasts. And you'll get all three parts on October 29th. And we're back.
0: And now let's go to my interview with Tom Parada, creator and showrunner of HBO's Mrs. Fletcher, an adaptation of his own best-selling novel. Tom, thank you so much for joining us
4: today. Oh, thanks for having me.
0: And I feel like you will do this much better than I could. How do you describe the show to people? What's the elevator pitch of what Mrs. Fletcher is about?
4: Uh, Well, it's about a divorced mom with one son on the day she becomes an empty nester. She takes him to school, drops him off, comes home to an empty house, and has to figure out what her life is going to be. At the same time, her son is off at college trying to figure out what that experience is going to be. And they both go on these journeys of discovery that are very much defined by their sexual lives.
0: And I feel obligated somehow to just note the fact that we're talking about this show. that is in no small part about female identity and desire. And we are two men having this (laughs) conversation, which seems a little funny to me
4: these questions of who gets to tell the story have become um, really heightened. But I've been basically exploring this territory for quite a while. And I you know, almost see Mrs. Fletcher as the third book in a trilogy that are about women, motherhood and sexuality and work. And so basically, that's a subject that has fascinated me. You know, I was aware that it was an imaginative challenge to try and enter the inner life of a woman of approximately my age. But It wasn't such a politically fraught thing to do at that time. And it has been this ongoing project of of mine. But for you, what was the initial inspiration for the
0: novel? And in some ways, I'm so interested in the fact that, yes, it's the story of a woman and her son, but there's so much in it that's about Facebook, pornography, emoticons, the way we're sort of living our lives now. For you, was it sort of based on these characters, or were you interested in this kind of portrait of a cultural moment?
4: Yeah, you know, I dropped my daughter off at college and there was just a double-edged surprise. You know, one is this parenting era, which seems endless, does come to an end. Because one thing came to an end, there's a space that's opened up for something new. And something new in midlife is really interesting. Once you become a middle-aged person, maybe when you're young, it doesn't seem that way. But there was that. And then there's just me personally, which was to be in a college dorm again was a surprisingly powerful moment for me. And probably I'm not the only one. I feel like I have some unfinished emotional business around college. I really wanted to be back there. That was my most powerful feeling. I'm leaving my daughter there and some part of me is like, I should be here. That was a fun time. That was a mind expanding time. That was a time when I felt really alive. It wasn't that I was so happy necessarily, but I felt like things were happening and the world was full of possibilities. And of course, college is the site of all these new definitions of gender, new vocabularies for gender, uh, new ideas about consent, a kind of pushback on male-centric sexual revolution, et et cetera. So it was just all these things kind of swirling around.
0: So tell me more about how you responded to this cultural moment, the idea that you've written these other stories that have had female characters that may or may not be sort of your proxy, the way that the character in Mrs. Fletcher is, and... How do you respond to the moment? Like, how difficult is is it for you to sort of change the way you're approaching these characters in your writing?
4: Well, almost that became the subject—the feeling of like, oh, I don't exactly know the rules of this game, you know. So I had to like consult with my kids who were in college or recently out of college. Am I getting this right? Um, What is this? Am I discussing gender in the in the correct way? I tried to kind of make that sense of of that tentative. (laughs) tiptoeing, feeling like a little bit part of the the story itself.
0: And then this is not the first novel of yours that's been adapted into a movie or a television show. Obviously, Election, Little Children, The Leftovers. At this point, when you're writing the novel of Mrs. Fletcher, are you thinking at all of the TV adaptation as you're writing your novel?
4: No. um, You know, it's just really hard to write a novel, and, and it's not a productive thing to say oh, two or three years, when I finish this book, maybe it will get made into a show. And I think what I've learned is you get a chance to make new decisions in the adaptation process. And in fact, getting a chance to tell the story again is actually a really cool thing. So just tell it this way now and we can revisit things later if we even get there. But I think the book is really like the throes of a kind of initial world building and Most of the time, I'm just sweating over how to finish this sentence, how to finish this scene, and just not projecting myself into the future. And the other thing is, you know, being a screenwriter, you realize that certain things are difficult to do in a screenplay, like moving in time, getting deep into a character's train of thought. And as a result, I'm, like, really happy to employ those devices when I have the chance when I'm writing fiction. And I do think Mrs. Fletcher is quite an internal book. It was a challenge to adapt because it's really about Eve's private evolution. She's alone a lot of the time, just her in a screen or just her in her head. And uh, I was happy to do that in the book, but then it was a whole other challenge. So if I I were really thinking about, you know, what's the easiest way to adapt, I wouldn't have written it that way.
0: And then your collaborators on the adaptation of Mrs. Fletcher, I mean, it's really an astonishing group of women that you're working with on this show producers Jesse Klein and Helen Esterbrook, and then the directors, Nicole Holoff Center, Lizelle Tommy, Carrie Brownstein, and Jillian Robespierre. How purposeful was that as far as maybe dealing with some of the issues we were talking about before of being concerned about this being a female centric story? You obviously being a man, like, did you purposely want this group of collaborators to sort of like help fill in some of those gaps you felt like there might be in the storytelling?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Once we entered this collaborative space, it just seemed crazy not to have this reality check of really strong women's voices in the show. And, you know, it it was really interesting for me. I mean, one of the great revelations, of course, and, and it's, I think, part of the limits of identity politics is, there were a lot of strong women on the show, and they had a lot of strong opinions that didn't always overlap. And it was great because it just reminds us yes, there are, roughly speaking, maybe a female perspective and a male perspective. But once you get, you're talking about creative people, five women in the room can have five different opinions. So that really became the experience of the show, wasn't so much like some monolithic female voice talking to me, but a chorus of, you know, people not always singing in, in harmony. And then, you know, we're having to decide together, well, is it that or is it this and what makes sense for this character? And as the show developed, Catherine Hahn just got deeper and deeper into this character to the point, I think, where I was really listening to her voice about what felt right to her. And she began to have a lot of story ideas as well and and really um, stepped up as a collaborator across the board.
0: It's funny, I I often find myself somewhat clumsily asking female filmmakers if there's any way to sort of like quantify or like answer the obvious question of what they bring to storytelling. And I'm so excited in a way to be able to ask you this same question because. You kind of know what you had before, and you know what you ended up with, so you maybe understand the equation a little better
4: than some people do.
0: What do you felt like those voices brought to the story?
4: Well, one thing I think that every woman involved in the show had in common was a great weariness with the male gaze. So, you know, we're telling a story that I think if you just get a one-liner, it sounds like it might be titillating. It's a middle-aged woman who starts to watch a lot of porn and there are a lot of scenes of her alone watching porn and sometimes masturbating and you can imagine the porny version of that i think we but also very much the women involved in making the show were wanted to resist that version they were very interested in like what that looks like in real life i don't want to spoil the scenes but i think you're watching a woman explore her sexuality She's not wearing sexy clothes. She's sometimes in awkward positions, you know. Um, that was something that everyone agreed on. Like, porn is for the man watching, you know, and in these shows about what's going on with the woman who is seeking pleasure.
0: And now tell me a little bit about the casting on the show, because Catherine Hahn, in particular, is just so perfect for this role, and she has such a knack for portraying women in this kind of certain sort of emotional freefall
4: when we started to just think in broad strokes, like, okay, this character is mid-40s and, like, she works at a senior center. It's a very unglamorous setting. She lives in a kind of very middle-class suburb. You know, not every movie star actress is believable to me in that space, you know, but Catherine very much is, she feels real to me. But the other real challenge was, as we talked about before, it's a very internal Story. And I think that there's just no one better at showing us on her face what's happening inside these micro expressions that make you just not want to take your eyes off of her because something is happening every moment with her. Um, Because she's alone a lot in the show, you need someone who is that magnetic to get you through those quiet moments. Catherine is so readable. (laughs) You know, you're just having to read her constantly. And I think when you watch her, you get very alert and that's an exciting place to be as a viewer. And tell me as well about
0: the casting of Jackson White, who plays her son in the show. I like so much a line that he has where he says something to the effect of, when I was in high school, everybody liked me, and now I'm in college and I'm some kind of bad guy. And he doesn't really understand the way the world has changed around him, and he's trying to respond to that. And it's an incredibly sort of empathetic performance, but also is difficult. He's not an easy kid to like at times. What was it like in casting that part?
4: Well, the reason we cast him, I think, is because he was able to show you the vulnerability underneath the bluster. Because I think the book really comes at you hard, like this guy is a jerk. And it takes a while for you to see that there's something. It's not even that you see there's something more to him. You understand why he's a jerk, <laughs> kind of. But, but understanding is one gateway to empathy, I think. When we auditioned uh, for the role, we had one scene where he was being a jerk to his mom, but then the other was the kind of monologue from the book He's telling a story. He thinks it's one thing, but you're seeing the other thing. You're seeing how much he misses his father and, and how deeply he's romanticized his father and how much he feels like some important thing has been removed from him in the divorce. That becomes, I think, a real key thing. And he just figured out a way to show him telling a story very confidently, but revealing himself to other people in a way that he's unaware of. And it was just a very complicated piece of acting to see him do, and we, it was just like, oh no one else came close to sort of pulling that off, having this monologue work on two entirely different levels.
0: I know the the season is seven episodes long and there's a fair amount of sort of action from the book that is not on the show. Are you saving something for a possible season two?
4: <laughs> well, we're, uh, there's no plans for that at, at the moment, but I agree that, um, you know, I, I learned from The Leftovers, you know, to, to have every season be its own story and... and If it's the only season, it would feel satisfying and, like, we did justice to the story we set out to tell. And I think we did that with this. But endings are arbitrary and stories, and, like, lives continue.
0: The show is Mrs. Fletcher. Tom Baratta, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. And that's it for this week's show. Thanks to producer Katie Cooper engineer mike heflin and la times studios listen to the reel on apple spotify at latimes.com slash podcasts or wherever you get your audio if you like what you hear please give us a five-star review